Chapter Four of the Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. The Green Rust by Edgar Wallace. Chapter Four: The Letters That Were Not There. She made a rapid survey of the documents. They were unimportant and consisted mainly of letters from the few girlfriends she had made during her stay at Punsonby's. Old theatre programs, recipes copied from newspapers, and bunches of snapshots taken on her last summer excursion. She arranged the things in some sort of rough order and made an inspection of her bedroom. Here, too, there was evidence that somebody had been searching the room. The drawers of her dressing table were open, and though the contents had been little disturbed, it was clear that they had been searched. She made another discovery. The window of the bedroom was open at the bottom. Usually it was open halfway down from the top, and was fastened in that position by a patent catch. This precaution was necessary, because the window looked upon a narrow iron parapet, which ran along the building and communicated with the fire escape. She looked out. Evidently the intruder had both come and gone this way, and— as, evidently, her return had disturbed him in his inspection, for it was hardly likely he would leave her papers and bureau in that state of confusion. She made a brief inspection of the drawers in the dressing-table, and so far as she could see nothing was missing. She went back to the writing-bureau, mechanically putting away the papers, little memorandum-books and letters which had been dragged from their pigeon-holes. Then— Resting her elbow on the desk, she sat, chin in hand, her pretty forehead wrinkled in a frown, recalling the events of the morning. Who had searched her desk? What did they hope to discover? She had no illusions that this was the work of a common thief. There was something behind all this, something sinister and terrifying. What association had the search with her summary dismissal? And what did the pompous Mr. White mean when he talked about definite knowledge? Definite knowledge of what? She gave it up with a shrug. She was not as much alarmed as disturbed. Life was grating a little, and she resented this departure from the smooth course which it had hitherto run. She resented the intrusion of Mr. Beale, who was drunk one moment and sober the next, who had offices in the city which he did not visit, and who took such an inordinate interest in her affairs. And she resented him all the more because, in some indefinable way, he had shaken her faith—no, not shaken her faith, that was too strong a term—he had paired the mild romance which Dr. Van Herden's friendship represented. She got up from the table and paced the room, planning her day. She would go out to lunch and indulge in the dissipation of a matinee. Perhaps she would stay out to dinner and come back. She shivered unconsciously and looked round the room. Somehow she did not look forward to an evening spent alone in her flat. "'Matilda, you're getting maudlin,' she said. "'You are getting romantic, too.' You are reading too many sensational novels and seeing too many sensational films. She walked briskly into her bedroom, 
unhooked a suit from the wardrobe and laid it on the bed. At that moment there came a knock at the door. She put down the clothes-brush, which was in her hand, walked out into the hall, opened the door, and stepped back. Three men stood in the passage without. Two were strangers, with that curious official look which the plain-clothes policeman can never wholly eradicate from his bearing. The third was Mr. White, more pompous and more solemn than ever. "'Miss Cresswell,' asked one of the strangers, "'that is my name.' "'May we come inside? I want to see you.' She led the way to her sitting-room. Mr. White followed in the rear. "'Your name is Oliver Cresswell. You were recently employed by Punsonby's Limited as cashier.' "'That is true,' she said, wondering what was coming next. "'Certain information was laid against you,' said the spokesman as a result of which you were discharged from the firm this morning? She raised her eyebrows in indignant surprise. Information laid against me, she said haughtily. What do you mean? I mean that a charge was made against you, that you were converting money belonging to the firm to your own use. That was the charge, I believe, sir? He turned to Mr. White. Mr. White nodded slowly. "'It is a lie! It is an outrageous lie!' cried the girl, turning flaming eyes upon the stout managing director of Ponsonby's. "'You know it's a lie, Mr. White. Thousands of pounds have passed through my hands, and I have never—oh, it's cruel!' "'If you will only keep calm for a little while, miss,' said the man, who was not unused to such outbreaks, I will explain that, at the moment of your dismissal, there was no evidence against you. No definite knowledge of your offence, murmured Mr. White. And now, demanded the girl, now we have information, miss, to the effect that three registered letters, containing in all a sum of sixty-three pounds, fourteen and sevenpence, murmured Mr. White. Sixty-three pounds odd, said the detective which were abstracted by you yesterday, are concealed in this flat. "'In the left-hand bottom drawer of your bureau,' murmured Mr. White, "'that is the definite knowledge which has come to us. It is a great pity.' The girl stared from one to the other. Three registered envelopes,' she said incredulously. "'In this flat?' "'In the bottom drawer of your bureau,' mumbled Mr. White." who stood throughout the interview with his eyes closed, his hands clasped in front of him, a picture of a man performing a most painful act of duty. "'I have a warrant,' began the detective. "'You need no warrant,' said the girl quietly. "'You are at liberty to search this flat, or bring a woman to search me. I have nothing in these rooms which I am ashamed that you should see.' The detective turned to his companion. "'Fred,' he said. Just have a look over that writing bureau. Is it locked, miss? She had closed and locked the secretaire, and handed the man the key. The detective who had done the speaking passed into the bedroom, and the girl heard him pulling out the drawers. She did not move from where she stood, confronting her late employer, still preserving his attitude of somnolent detachment. Mr. White, she asked quietly, I have a right to know who accused me of stealing from your firm. 
he made no reply. "'Even a criminal has a right to know that, you know,' she said, recovering some of her poise. "'I suppose that you have been missing things for quite a long while. People always miss things for quite a long while before the thief is discovered, according to the Sunday papers.' "'I do not read newspapers published on the Lord's Day,' said Mr. White reproachfully. "'I do not know the habits of the criminal classes. "'But, as you say, and I fear I must convey the gist of our speech to the officers of the law, "'money has been missed from your department for a considerable time. "'And as to your accuser, acting as a—a—' a, as a good citizen, and performing the duties which are associated with good citizenship, I cannot reveal his, her, or their name. She was eyeing him curiously with a gleam of dormant laughter in her clear eyes. Then she heard a hurried footstep in the little passage, and remembered that the door had been left open, and she looked round. The newcomer was Dr. Van Herden. "'What is this I hear?' he demanded fiercely, addressing White. "'You dare accuse Miss Creswell of theft?' "'My dear doctor,' began White. "'It is an outrage,' said the doctor. "'It is disgraceful, Mr. White. I will vouch for Miss Creswell with my life.' The girl stopped him with a laugh. "'Please don't be dramatic, doctor. It's really a stupid mistake. I didn't know you knew, Mr. White. It is a disgraceful mistake.' said the doctor violently. "'I am surprised at you, White.' Mr. White could not close his eyes any tighter than they were closed. He passed the responsibility for the situation upon an invisible providence, with one heaving shrug of his shoulders. "'It is awfully kind of you to take this interest, doctor,' said the girl, putting out her hands to him. "'Twas just like you.' "'Is there anything I can do?' he asked earnestly. You can depend upon me to the last shilling if any trouble arises out of this. No trouble will arise out of it, she said. Mr. White thinks that I have stolen money, and that that money is hidden in the flat. By the way, who told you I had been accused? For a moment he was taken aback. Then I saw the police officers go into your flat, recognized them. "'and as they were accompanied by White, and you had been dismissed this morning, I drew my own conclusions.' "'It was at this moment that the detective came back from the bedroom. "'There is nothing there,' he said. "'Mr. White opened his eyes to their fullest extent. "'In the bottom drawer of the bureau?' he asked incredulously. "'Neither in the bottom drawer nor the top drawer,' said the detective. "'Have you found anything, Fred?' "'Nothing,' said the other man. "'Have a look behind those pictures.' They turned up the corners of the carpets, searched her one little bookcase, looked under the tables, an unnecessary and amusing proceeding in the girl's eyes, till the detective explained, with that display of friendliness which all policemen show to suspected persons whom they do not at heart suspect, it was not an uncommon process for criminals to tack the proceeds of banknote robberies to the underside of the table. "'Well, miss,' said the detective at last, with a smile, "'I hope we haven't worried you very much. "'What do you intend doing, sir?' he addressed White. "'Did you search the bottom drawer of the bureau?' 
said Mr. White, again. I searched the bottom drawer of the bureau, the top drawer, and the middle drawer, said the detective patiently. I searched the back of the bureau, the trinket drawer, the trinket boxes. And it was not there, said Mr. White, as though he could not believe his ears. It was not there. What I want to know is, do you charge this young lady? If you charge her, of course. You take all the responsibility for the act, and if you fail to convict her, you will be liable to an action for false arrest. I know, I know, I know, said Mr. White, with remarkable asperity in one so placid. No, I do not charge her. I am sorry you have been inconvenienced. He turned to the girl in his most majestic manner. "'and I trust that you bear no ill-will.' "'He offered a large and flabby hand, but Oliver ignored it. "'Mind you don't trip over the mat as you go out,' she said. "'The passage is rather dark.' "'Mr. White left the room, breathing heavily. "'Excuse me one moment,' said the doctor, in a low voice. "'I have a few words to say to White.' "'Please don't make a fuss,' said Oliver. I would rather the matter dropped where it is. He nodded and strolled out after the managing director of Ponsonby's. They made a little group of four. Can I see you in my flat for a moment, Mr. White? Certainly, said Mr. White cheerfully. You don't want us any more? asked the detective. No, said Mr. White. Then are you quite sure you searched the bottom drawer of the bureau? Perfectly sure said the detective, irritably. You don't suppose I've been at this job for twenty years and should overlook the one place where I expected to find the letters? Mr. White was saved the labor of framing a suitable retort, for the door of Mr. Beale's flat was flung open, and Mr. Beale came forth. His gray hat was on the back of his head, and he stood erect with the aid of the doorpost, surveying with a bland and inane smile the little knot of men. "'Why,' he said jovially, "'it's the dear old doctor, and if my eyes don't deceive me, it's the jolly old archbishop.' Mr. White brindled. That he was known as the archbishop in the intimate circles of his acquaintances afforded him a certain satisfaction. That a perfect stranger, and a perfectly drunken stranger at that, should employ a nickname which was for the use of a privileged few, distressed him. "'And,' said the swaying man by the door, peering through the half-darkness, "'is it not Detective Sergeant Peterson and Constable Fairbank? Welcome to this home of virtue!' The detective sergeant smiled, but said nothing. The doctor fingered his beard indecisively, but Mr. White essayed to stride past, his chin in the air, ignoring the greeting. But Mr. Beale was too quick for him. He lurched forward, caught the lapels of the other's immaculate frock-coat, and held himself erect thereby. "'My dear old Whitey,' he said. "'I don't know you, sir,' cried Mr. White. "'Will you please unhand me?' "'Don't know me, Whitey, why, you astonishing old thing!' He slipped his arm over the other's shoulder in an attitude of affectionate regard. "'Don't know old Beale.' "'I never met you before,' 
said Mr. White, struggling to escape. "'Bless my life and soul,' said Mr. Beale, stepping back, shocked and hurt. "'I call you to witness, Detective Sergeant Peterson, an amiable Constable Fairbank, and learn, Dr. Van Heerden, that he has denied me, and it has come to this,' he said bitterly, and leaning his head against the doorpost, he howled like a dog. "'I say, stop your fooling, Bill,' said the doctor angrily. "'There's been very serious business here, and I should thank you not to interfere.' Mr. Beale wiped an imaginary tear from his eyes, grasped Mr. White's unwilling hand, and shook it vigorously, staggered back to his flat, and slammed the door behind him. "'Do you know that man?' asked the doctor, turning to the detective. "'I seem to remember his face,' said the sergeant. "'Come on, Fred. Good morning, gentlemen.' They waited till the officers were downstairs and out of sight, and then the doctor turned to the other, and in a different tone from any he had employed, said, "'Come to my room for a moment, White,' and Mr. White followed obediently. They shut the door, passed into the study, with its rows of heavily bound books, its long table, covered with test-tubes and the paraphernalia of medical research. "'Well,' said White, dropping into a chair, "'what happened?' "'That is what I want to know,' said the doctor. He took a cigarette from a box on the table and lit it, and the two men looked at one another without speaking. "'Do you think she had letters and hid them?' "'Impossible,' replied the doctor briefly. White grunted, took a cigar from a long leather case, bit off the end savagely, and reached out his hand for a match. "'The best-laid schemes of mice and men,' he quoted. "'Oh, shut up,' said the doctor savagely. He was pacing the study with long strides. He stopped at one end of the room, staring moodily through the window, his hands thrust in his pockets. "'I wonder what happened,' he said again. "'Well, that can wait.' "'Now, just tell me exactly how matters stand regarding you and Ponsonby's.' "'I have all the figures here,' said Mr. White, as he thrust his hand into the inside pocket of his frock-coat. "'I can raise forty thousand pounds by debentures, and—hello, what's this?' He drew from his pocket a white packet, fastened about by a rubber band. This he slipped off and gasped for in his hands were three registered letters, and they were addressed to Monsieur Ponsonby, and each had been slit open. End of chapter 4 Recording by Kirsten Weber